This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. New polling data was released this week that poses a stark problem for President Biden. Younger Americans view him less favorably than older ones do. According to both Gallup and Quinnipiac, Biden is down double digits since the 2020 election. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Young people are expected to be the great future hope of the Democratic Party, with their liberal views influencing their vote for decades to come. Yet, most of the data suggests profound disillusionment. All of this suggests more bad news for the midterm elections. Quite simply, these folks are the ground troops for Biden's Democratic coalition. If they don't turn out on election day, we're fucking screwed. There is brand new polling out on the presidential approval rating, and it's not good for President Biden. You know, there was always that thing, oh, Donald Trump has the lowest approval rating at this point in his presidency. We did it over and over and over and over again. Well, at this point in his presidency, Donald Trump's numbers actually, his average approval rating is one point higher than Joe Biden's, which is a 41%, Donald Trump at 42%. A first-term president at this point in his presidency, uh, this is the lowest. This is the lowest for anyone who was elected to the presidency and didn't get up there through the vice presidency. This is a really, really, really bad number. President Biden's low approval ratings understandably receive a lot of attention, but that doesn't mean Republicans are getting rave reviews either. To the contrary, GOP congressional performance draws even less support than Biden does, and some of their most public stances get thumbs down with the public overall. If you need any further proof that an aspiring autocrat is leading one of the two major political parties in America, look no further than the votes the Republican National Committee has taken this year. They voted to censure members of their own party, Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, back in February over their participation in the January 6th committee. In that same vote, the RNC described the attack on the Capitol as, quote, legitimate political discourse. Today, they voted unanimously to pull out of the presidential debates that have been run by the nonpartisan nonprofit Commission on Presidential Debates since 1988. Trump had repeatedly criticized the commission after his widely panned debate performances in 2020. Today, the Republican National Committee made sure he wouldn't have to suffer through such an ordeal again. Calling the commission biased, the RNC said they would be looking for, quote, newer, better debate platforms, did not elaborate on exactly what those platforms would be. Take Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Republicans spent weeks falsely claiming she is weak on child pornographers and analogizing her representation of detained combatants to representing Nazis. The later accusation of Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas drew a stinging rebuke from the Anti-Defamation League. But poll after poll shows that voters approve of her nomination by much greater margins than recent GOP-nominated justices enjoyed themselves. Republican efforts to smear Jackson have not gone over well with voters. You know, the last Judge Jackson left the Supreme Court to go to Nuremberg and prosecute the case against the Nazis. This Judge Jackson might have gone there to defend them. When it comes to the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, the public is riveted and the prospect of sending a criminal referral to the Justice Department for Trump and his cronies would be historic shit. Yet, the Republicans in Congress continue to vilify its presence and threaten to shut it down. 
This too is viewed as widely authoritarian and out of step with what mainstream American voters want or expect. We start with the January 6th probe and the committee flexing its evidence. We are starting to see more incriminating evidence leak out, seeing just how deep the plan to steal the election of 2020 was. Newly revealed text messages obtained by CNN show Senator Mike Lee and Congressman Chip Roy going right to Mark Meadows in full support of those false claims of fraud being pushed by Trump and the MAGA team. So if the GOP's performance, its cult leader and its policies are so out of step with the public, why would voters decide to give them back the majority in one or both chambers of Congress? Well, this wouldn't be the first time voters view to find logical explanation. But we really could be on the road to Trump 2.0 if Republicans snatch back control of Congress during the midterm elections. And that's what we're looking at, folks. Up for grabs in the Senate, 14 Democrat held seats and 21 Republican. If just one seat flips red, the scale would tip in favor of the GOP. And listen, if Republicans take control of both chambers, election reform would die. Anti-abortion efforts would be venerated. And CRT bans, which isn't taught in any school anywhere, by the way, could become the law of the land. But here's this. Also, DOA, any attempts by Congress to hold Trump accountable. So say bye-bye to the January 6th investigating committee. There are a few reasons voters who disapprove of Republicans' performance and don't like their positions may still vote for them. First, Voters and the media remain hyper-focused on the presidency. President Biden isn't on the ballot in November, but voting against the Democrats is the only way voters can express their negative view about him. I'm talking about the persuadable middle, not the lunatics who refuse to believe that Biden is their president. I've written those people off as cult victims. I think that one of the biggest challenges that Democrats have right now is that they're failing to grab some of those folks in the middle. And that's for a couple of reasons. One of them is that the kind of traditional turnout that we think of campaigns needing to do is actually happening at the polls, right? Polls as in the, the extremes, right? So Republicans are trying to make sure that their newly minted hardcore MAGA heads are still going to turn out for them, right? You saw that kind of question in races like the Virginia gubernatorial, right? Could Glenn Youngkin thread the needle of seeming like he was distancing himself from Trump, but still turning out the far right. And the answer was he did, right? Democrats also have that issue. And this has been alluded to in the last couple of minutes. A lot of voters who have come out for Democrats think, well, what have you done for me lately? And so I, I think it's really, really critical. We're not going to reach the KIV supporters of the world. We're not going right. to reach these dog whistle followers. But but Democrats certainly, unfortunately, have to take the moral high ground and figure out what are the issues that are going to activate some of these people. It is unfortunately not really democracy, right? And, and you start to see some interesting wedges when you look even at polling of Republican primary candidates or voters, rather. You can see that these Republican primary voters who don't believe that Joe Biden won the 2020 election, also want to have like a minimum wage increase, right? A, a, yeah. a policy reform that Republicans are never going to give them. So that's a moment and an opportunity for Democrats to try to grab back some of the some of those folks. Second, the White House and Democrats do a really shitty job of calling out Republicans for their fucking obstruction, their insane radical views and total antagonism toward things voters care about. 
Maybe it's coming, but the Democrats have yet to frame the stark choice awaiting voters should they return these lunatics to power. We have to put Trump back on the ballot, right? That 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 the the multiracial coalition, that surge that you spoke of in 2018 and that and that came back out in 2020, what united that surge was an anti-MAGA, anti-Trump, anti-racism. Uh, uh, a sentiment that, that really started to bubble up in the summer of 2020. We have to put Trump back on the ballot, but that means, that does not mean that we, that, that we get to make every Republican seem like Trump. It means that we have to literally explain that if, if, Demo, if Republicans win the House and the Senate in 2022, they will reinstall Trump in 2024. Third, according to the Washington Post, one cannot overestimate the importance of inflation in souring voters' mood. They are upset about gas and other price hikes, and that colors their views to an extent Democrats may not appreciate. As the Brookings Institution's William A. Galston warned in an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, inflation is now, incontestably, the leading issue for the electorate and voters are given the Biden administration low marks for handling it. Since President Biden assumed office, it's the one thing that I said he needed to do is make people's lives tangibly better. Make sure their day-to-day -day experience is better under him than the last guy, because that's what's gonna ride on the midterms as well as 2024. And right now, I think the White House is starting to recalibrate. They recognize that people's needs aren't being met. They recognize that their historic economic gains are being eaten up by historic inflation and rising costs in food and housing and energy. And so now I think they're gonna try to take bite-sized efforts to combat inflation. We see the president releasing oil every day. We see him requesting waivers for ethanol 15 gas, but there's still more they can do, whether legislatively on top of the Bipartisan Innovation Act putting forth another push to get an extended child care tax credit, which we know lifted millions of children and their families out of poverty, as well as efforts like canceling student loan debt, which he has already promised to do. It's those efforts that will make sure people are experiencing something different, seeing something different in their bank accounts in real time. This is a political crisis for Democrats who are battling to retain their House and Senate majorities in highly unfavorable circumstances. And let's be honest, voters are self-interested. Remember the old mantra, it's the economy, stupid. Well, it still is. And when people are paying $6 a fucking gallon to fill their behemoth SUVs, they don't care about much else. Whether you're filling your gas tank or the grocery cart. Prices have gone up, their overall grocery bill has gone up. From paying the rent to dining out. We used to eat out like once a week or something and we hardly ever do that anymore. Inflation is taking a big bite out of Americans' everyday budgets and savings. The latest report out this morning is expected to show an 8.4% spike from a year ago. That would be the highest since December 1981, when Raiders of the Lost Ark was number one at the box office, Ronald Reagan was president, and unemployment was pushing 10%. But the causes of inflation today are far different. A post-pandemic economic boom, the global supply chain still struggling with China in another COVID lockdown. And the war in Ukraine sending food and energy prices even higher. The idea of returning both the House and Senate to these lunatics fills me with existential despair. It's almost unfathomable that these people who have done so much to damage this country and destroy democracy will be handed back the reins of power. Time is running out for Biden to turn things around. 
The GOP's all-culture war, all-the-time playbook has proven surprisingly effective. Every election that takes place in this country for the short term, given the tack that the Republicans have taken, which is an anti-authoritarianism, I'm sorry, an anti-democracy authoritarianism party, means, Tiffany, that there needs to be that sense of concern and that sense of mobilization because it's true. We've seen this party become radicalized. We've seen this party completely become unfit for the mainstream and untethered from democracy. And if you turn control of this government over to the Republicans, you are turning over the democracy. Simple as that. Let's peer into the looking glass for a moment and imagine what the future holds should a GOP midterm sweep come to pass. First, let's look at election day. In the battle for the Senate, the chamber is split in a rare 50-50 tie between parties. But technically, the Democratic caucus has the majority because Vice President Harris cast the tie-breaking vote. All Republicans need for the majority is to gain one seat. That's it. Then the Senate would stand at 51 to 49, with Republicans having a one-vote majority, and Mitch fucking McConnell will stand in the way of anything right or good happening in Washington for the foreseeable future. There's probably about nine states at this point that appear to be worth watching in terms of the ones that will determine control. Four of those are held by Democratic uh, candidates at this point, Arizona, Georgia, New Hampshire, and Nevada, and five of those states are held by Republicans. You're looking at Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Now, it's worth noting in those Republican-held states, three of those seats are currently open because senators are not running for re-election. Rob Portman from Ohio, Pat Toomey from uh, Pennsylvania, and Richard Burr from North Carolina. So you have some contentious primaries there uh, as Republicans figure out who will be their nominee uh, to, to replace those retiring senators potentially. Uh, there's some primary action on the Democratic side. It hasn't quite uh, become you know, as contentious in many of those cases. And look, a couple of those states will be difficult for Democrats to flip, right? States like Florida and Ohio, we've seen the popularity and how well Republicans have done during uh, President Trump's years in office, and we'll see how that continues, or if that continues, I should say, you know, without uh, the former president in office and on the ballot. And certainly there are places where parties may be looking to expand the map. Republicans, you know, are confident that perhaps a state like Colorado could become in play if the environment is favorable enough to them. You know, but Democrats, at least when they're looking at the seats that they are defending, feel good about the fact that they have incumbents who are in those races who they believe have a record to run on. In the battle for the House, Democrats hold the majority by eight seats. And this is where things could get ugly. First and foremost, Republicans are winning the redistricting fight, which is redrawing the congressional map in favor of the GOP. In many of the battleground states, this will determine which party controls the House of Representatives for years to come. That means Republicans would not even have to win many competitive races to take back the majority. They could conceivably just redraw themselves some or all the way there. So far, the bold moves highlighted by the Biden administration, like the Build Back Better Act, have failed to move the needle for Democrats. Stubborn inflationary pressure, residual fear from the pandemic, and the GOP's relentless culture war have Democratic congressmen on the run. I'm worried that if Republicans uh, win in the midterm elections, uh, that voting as we know it in this country uh, will be gone. They're already putting as many barriers to the ballot box 
as possible in Arizona, Florida, Texas, Georgia. And on the other side of the finish line, they're putting in place processes where they could reverse the outcome, even if we crawl through glass and run through the fire to get to the ballot box. And so uh, if they are able to win the House, uh, the damage they could do, uh, you know, to permanently uh, make it difficult to vote and, and just alter the way that we participate in a democratic process uh, could be irreversible. And so uh, this may not be, as I, as I said, uh, this is not only the most important election, uh, if we don't get it right, it could be the last election because they're also putting in place what I believe uh, is a way to make sure that Donald Trump wins uh, with what they're doing across state legislatures uh, to allow them to reverse the outcome in the Electoral College. And that's why I also put in a link to IWillVote.com, uh, a nonpartisan group that allows you to check your registration status and register to vote if you're not already registered. Okay, let's pretend now that the nightmare scenario comes to pass. Then what? Since last year, Republicans have increasingly signaled how they plan to exact vengeance on those who've tried to make them and their leader, Donald Trump, pay any price for the coup attempt following the 2020 election. For his part, the twice impeached former president has his own wish list of conspiracy theory fueled ideas for how to get even. And he has personally pushed other GOP figures to commit to them. They rigged the election and now, based on the rigged election, they're destroying our country. Those responsible for wrongdoing must be held accountable. It was a corrupt election. The 2020 presidential election was rigged. We won the election in a landslide. You know it. I know it. I believe this election was stolen from Donald J. Trump. What we saw in 2020, and it's important to have the courage to say it, is that the technology industry, working with Democratic operatives in a few big battleground states, rigged the 2020 election. Trump has privately told GOP lawmakers, congressional candidates, and operatives in recent months that Republicans on Capitol Hill should be prepared to launch a full-blown fucking investigation to get to the bottom of how FBI agents supposedly caused violence and mayhem on January 6th. But strangely, some of the key people who participated on January 6th have not been charged. It's not strange at all. Prosecutors are still building their cases. But Carlson is claiming, without any proof, that the people given anonymity in court papers, the people called unindicted co-conspirators, were actually government agitators there to stoke a riot. The government knows who they are, but the government has not charged them. Why is that? You know why. They were almost certainly working for the FBI. So FBI operatives were organizing the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. The theory that the Fed somehow orchestrated or caused the rioting at the Capitol is fucking groundless, but it has nevertheless been embraced in influential spheres of Republican politics, in Trump land, and in right-wing media and online culture. The appeal, of course, lies in the attempt to shift obvious blame off the 45th U.S. president and conservatives. Here's Marjorie Taylor Greene assuming Carlson is right and saying we need names and answers about the FBI operatives who were involved. Currently, liberals in the Democratic-controlled House are wielding those powers on the January 6th committee, which is ready to make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice for Trump's actions leading up to the deadly Capitol riot and his efforts to nullify Joe Biden's 2020 election win. 
The former president wants the same thing, but for his version of history, one of these sources who have spoken to Trump about this several times said. And Trump's MAGA toadies on the right are more than happy to back him up. If you're going to have an investigation into January 6th, then let's have an investigation. Former Representative Jack Kingston of Georgia, who also served as a Trump surrogate, said recently, Why is House Speaker Nancy Pelosi off limits? Why can't she get all the records in a timely manner? I'd like to see all the FBI informants they were working with, Republican or Democrat. Let's take a look. What was known before the riot by the FBI, and why wasn't it acted on? It would be good to have that after-action review. Go ahead and put it all on the table. Trump's behind-the-scene push on this underscores how a year and a half after the Capitol assault, the Republican Party's mainstream players have coalesced around a clear strategy to punish the people probing Trump's anti-democratic efforts to elevate conspiracy theory over actual accountability and exculpate the Trumpist perpetrators as fully as they can get away with. But I think the picture that emerges from talking to his uh, former and current aides uh, either in Mar-a-Lago or in Washington is that he feels really unmoored and he really is finding difficulty with the fact that he doesn't have the power to, as you say, influence the course of this, uh, this investigation. Um, if you look at the kind of things he's complaining about that we discussed in the story, he's not happy that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy didn't put any of his allies on the panel to defend him. You know, this is one of his favorite refrains, that no one is defending me. But he's also upset with people uh, like Jeffrey Clark because they've been invoking uh, their Fifth Amendment you know, protection for self-incrimination or against self-incrimination. And he thinks this makes them look weak and he thinks it makes them look complicit in a crime. And he's worried not that they might get a criminal referral, but it might bounce back and he might get a criminal referral. It's all about him, it's all about the optics. Um, the one thing he did like was Bannon saying, I'm not gonna cooperate the committee at all. He thought that was a really strong image in, in his eye. Um, but the, the, the bottom line is he's no longer president and the, the trouble is he can't influence his investigation in the way that he might have done with the Russian inquiry or the special counsel investigation and I think that really weighs on him. The formula has become one of the biggest factors driving Trump's own enthusiasm for the 2022 midterms as well as for the next presidential contest in 2024 when he hopes for a rematch against President Biden. Further, the ex-president's calls for revenge and renewed push to investigate the investigators has now cemented itself as one of the right's guaranteed applause lines as the GOP campaigns to end democratic control in official Washington. Let's not forget the comments from Newt Gingrich earlier this year when he threatened to jail those who investigated the January 6th insurrection. You're gonna have a Republican majority in the House and a Republican majority in the Senate, and all these people who've been so tough and so mean and so nasty are going to be delivered subpoenas for every document, every conversation, every tweet, every email, uh, because I think it's clear that this, these are people who are literally just running over the law, pursuing innocent people, causing them to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees for no justification, and it's basically a lynch mob and unfortunately, the Attorney General of the United States has joined that lynch mob and is totally misusing the FBI. And I think when you have a Republican Congress, this is all going to come crashing down and the wolves are going to find out that they're now sheep 
and they're the ones who are in fact going to, I think, face a real risk of jail uh, for the kind of laws they're breaking. Beyond January 6th, we can also expect an endless parade of bullshit investigations from the likes of asshole Jim Jordan, who will use his newfound power to indulge in all manner of conspiracy. The Ohio Republican is already planning investigations he aims to launch if the GOP retakes power in the House during the 2022 midterms and he becomes chair of the House Judiciary Committee next year. In this next kind of uh, period for Congress, you know, what is that thing that you think, particularly the Judiciary Committee, can have a role in delivering on? No secret, you're the Republican lead on the Judiciary Committee. If we take the majority, you will likely be the first chair of that committee to not be a member of the bar in the history of the committee. Yeah. So walk us through the Jim Jordan vision that for kind of the opening weeks. No, that committee has a, um, um, I always say, a storied history. You think about Henry Hyde. Uh, you think about some of the people who've led that, that committee. A storied history of defending the Bill of Rights, uh, Americans, the American people's fundamental liberties and freedoms. And right now what we have is a committee that's doing just the opposite. So what we're going to have to do is, the, one, we're going to have to do the investigations that need done. I mean, this idea that the IRS released thousands of people's uh, tax returns. Now, that'll probably be, uh, you know, led over in, in the Ways and Means Committee. Would you have an investigation but, subcommittee and an oh, oversight subcommittee? We, we definitely need that. We need, to, we need to look into the IRS situation. We need to look into what, what's happening with this Justice Department going after parents, this issue that we're focused on right now at, at school board meetings, what they're doing, the political nature of our Justice Department right now. We need to look into all that. We need to, we need to go after big tech, censorship. I mean, this thing... What's happening to speech? I always say the five liberties we have under the First Amendment, your right to practice your faith, the right to assemble, right to petition your government, freedom of press, freedom of speech. Speech is the most important because if you can't speak, if you can't speak, you can't really fully practice your faith. So speech is the most important. What big tech in collusion with big government is doing in this cancel culture world we live in is so wrong. Barry Weiss called it the digital thunderdome. You take on, you take on the woke mob. They will put you in the Thunderdome. Ask, ask someone as, um, ask Drew Brees, who said we should stand for the national anthem. Now, Drew Brees is as apple pie as you can get. He is a great American, wonderful Christian family guy. And he had to, he had to back down from the mob. This is frightening. But I, I said this last week. I actually think Americans are, are, are going to push back in a big way. And I think the main reason is what happened with Merrick Garland. When he goes after moms and dads, like, wait a minute, this is the last straw. So that's what the Judiciary Committee has to focus on. Um, those, those fundamental rights we have, have under the First Amendment, making sure we defend them. The Ohio Republican currently serves as the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee. If the GOP retakes control of the House, as many analysts expect the party to do, Jordan would be seen as the most likely lawmaker to chair the Legislative Chamber's Judiciary Committee. Now that's fucking terrifying. Basically, it will be all conspiracy all the time for the foreseeable future if these fucking assholes assume the majority. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is Bloomberg senior opinion writer Tim O'Brien. If there is an enemies list of people Donald Trump wants locked up and tortured, O'Brien is close to the top. 
Upon publication of his 2005 book, Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald, O'Brien was sued by the former president for five billion fucking dollars. O'Brien had committed the cardinal sin of reporting that Trump was not as rich as he claimed, valuing the Donald's real net worth at that time being just 250 million instead of the 10 billion sum that Trump bragged about to whoever would listen. The intervening suit went on for nearly four years before being tossed by a New Jersey judge. It was in that deposition where Trump famously admitted that his net worth rose and fell based on how he was feeling. While Trump claimed that he ruined O'Brien, the journalist continued to flourish professionally. In 2012, as executive editor of the Huffington Post, O'Brien conceived, edited, and oversaw a 10-part series about wounded veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan for which the Huffington Post won a Pulitzer Prize. O'Brien has been political analyst and contributor to NBC, MSNBC since 2017, and he appears regularly on Deadline White House, Ari Melba's The Beat, The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell, Rachel Maddow, and Morning Joe. In his latest Bloomberg opinion pieces, O'Brien writes about the toxic effect Elon Musk will have upon Twitter if he succeeds in purchasing the tech giant. Jared Kushner's questionable relationship with Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman, as well as a plea for Merrick Garland to get off his fucking ass and prosecute Donald Trump already. He joins me on Maya Culpa today to discuss all this and more. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, Tim, so Democrats are in a state of panic and it's growing. Even though the president has received high marks, even from some Republicans, on his handling of the war in Ukraine, that's not moving the numbers at all for him. So what does it say about the Biden presidency that even with all the information dredged up by the January 6th committee and the GOP's own complicity in the insurrection, that the Democrats could still lose the majority? What's happening here that folks would rather put the lunatics back in the asylum? Because is, is it all just about inflation at the end of the day? What's, what's driving the fact that we're not getting numbers? Well, inflation is a, is a big factor. The reality is it's very hard for working Americans to afford some of the things they once did. And this is not just a phenomenon in the U.S. Macron is wrestling with it. Right now in France, he's got unexpected pre pressure from his right side. In that election, uh, Boris Johnson is dealing with it in the UK. This is a global phenomenon right now. And it's an unusual phenomenon because whether there are leftist governments or moderate governments or conservative governments in place, they're all in developing countries right now. Some very authoritarian regimes ha are struggling to stay in their voters' favor because of inflation. So inflation is a huge part of this. It, it just can't be discounted. And that's beyond any leader's control often. I think the pressures that are causing inflation in the U.S., I, I disagree with some of the received wisdom that this is because of debt spending by the federal government. I, I, I think a lot of this is supply chain deficits, broadly construed, labor, global supplies, et cetera. So that's, that's a big factor. I think the second thing is I think there's a, in the U.S. specifically, I think we, we still have a lot of profound social division around COVID-related issues. Um, you know, how school lockdowns went in particular. I think, I think um, the gubernatorial elections 
over the last year in Virginia, New Jersey in particular, show that Democrats uh, voters were taking independent and independent voters who had come over to the Democrats from the GOP side were taking the Democrats to task for what they felt was a lot of insensitivity around getting their kids back in the schools. And I think that that I don't think it was because of uh, critical race theory. I don't think it was because of uh, the culture wars broadly defined. I think it really they I think people felt that the leadership was parents felt the leadership wasn't in touch with what they needed from them to get their kids back into schools. And I think that I, I think that hurt Biden has hurt Biden. I think the way he handled the Afghanistan pullout, I don't think foreign policy normally uh, is an Achilles heel for most presidents. But I think that particular pullout got a lot of play. Um, I think I think the way he's handled the Ukraine war has turned some of that around. But I think when you twin the COVID related issues plus inflation, um, it, there's just a lot of bad sentiment right now uh, heading in, into the midterms, uh, despite, I think, what are a lot of legislative and policy successes by the Democrats. So l- let's just talk about Afghanistan, because I've talked about this on the podcast in the past. And to those of my listeners, I apologize for sometimes the incessant repetition. But I got into an argument with a friend of mine not more than a week ago, and he's a very bright guy. He's a Wall Street guy. He happens to be a Trump supporter because Trump's economic plans certainly benefited him and benefited him significantly. He made a lot of money during the Trump administration. Why? Well, you know, they threw away so many of the government you know, uh, restrictions. And, you know, he was able to take advantage of taxes, taxes, the state taxes, the whole nine yards. But one of the things he brought up, and it really, it fucking pissed me off, right, to be very honest with you, was Afghanistan, the withdrawal. And I looked at him and I said, forgetting about the fact that he's so, you know, he's so morbidly heavy that, you know, he couldn't be part of the military even if he tried, right? Um, the two, as I explained... Well, let's not take him to task for that. Let's well, just take him to task for his bad analysis. Well, agreed. But the point I was trying to make is that, you know, he's never served in the military. He doesn't understand the military, as neither have I. So I've spoken to people like General Mark Hurtling and and other members of the armed forces, people who have served, whether they were Marines or... Um, you know, or other um, active members of, you know, the armed forces. And the two most dangerous times in war is getting in and getting out. That's what everybody will acknowledge and say. It's not while you're there. While you're there, you have your backup, whether it's going to be air support, whether it's going to be sea, whether it's going to be land, etc. His His response was the same as like what you just said. A lot of people are not giving Biden any kudos at all for the withdrawal of Afghanistan. And I want to point out something that, again, I regularly point out on this program, which is that 13 people, I believe, died as a result of a, of a bomber, a suicide bomber. 125 plus thousand people were safely evacuated. Now, I will not lie and I will not try to fool anyone and say that it was flawless. It was not. We saw pictures of people hanging onto the side of the planes and all that other bullshit and the number of people that were there at the airport. I understand. It was it flawless? No. But at the end of the day, 
125,000 plus people were safely evacuated and 13 people were unfortunately killed. 13 service members were unfortunately killed. And I don't discount their lives at all, but I do want to compare it to 125,000 plus individuals that were safely evacuated. As far as I'm concerned, that sounds like a major success to me. So why does he get no props for it? Well, I think first off, I think a lot of the coverage of it was as a, which it was, was pell-mell, poorly communicated, last minute, helter-skelter. There was a lot of that around that. Uh, and and I, think, I think Western allies felt it wasn't communicated properly to them. Uh, we, we saw a lot of images in the media of people stranded. It didn't look like it was choreographed properly. Uh, I agree with you. At the end of the day, though, I think our departure from Afghanistan was long in coming. Uh, uh, we had been there a very long time. Uh, Biden had had antipathy towards that engagement for a long time. Uh, it didn't begin with the Obama administration, obviously. It, it began with the prior administration, with the Bush administration. Uh, so every administration inherited that from the Biden administration. And um, there may not have been any easily choreographed and quote unquote clean way to get out of Afghanistan at the end of the day. Uh, I think I think Biden wanted to do it with some immediacy and, and very directly. I think there were a lot of um, communication problems around it that that I think um, on his national security team and on his wife's within the White House that they should have addressed. Um, but I don't think it's ended up sitting well with most voters. I don't think I, I think regardless of the truth of what occurred, and I think you're right to point to those statistics, they're telling and important. It still, I think, ended up being a negative for Biden at the end of the day from an electoral standpoint. Yeah, I to look, I agree with you as far as the way the electorate or at least Republican electorate are looking at it. But at the end of the day, again, to me, war is war. Getting in and getting out are the two hardest parts. Now, I don't discount the work that is done by the military while they're there on the ground, but 20 years to be there, getting in and getting out is what I have been told by military individuals is the roughest part. Let's also not forget that, well, the, you know, you know, the, wait one sec, Tim, ahead, let's also ahead. not forget that there was an agreement um, as part of the Doha agreement, right, that the Trump administration agreed to the reduction of U.S. forces you know, it was from 13,000 to 8,500 troops by July of 2020 and a complete withdrawal by May 1st of 2021. That was not a Biden decision. That was one that the Biden administration inherited from the Trump administration. And so he was just fulfilling something that the Afghan government and others wanted to see happen. So, yes, it was sloppy. I agree. The preparation, the, the, um, the methodology that was used, the interaction with our allies was sloppy. But at the end of the day, it still turned out to be a good piece of art, right? Well, you know, I think one of the things this raises, and, and it, 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 it also involves um, public policy around COVID, is I think the Democrats just are not playing major league ball around messaging and communications. I think 
on issue after issue, they constantly get outflanked by Republicans. Republicans, I think, have been shrewder about how to, from a, a, a grotesquely um, street-level knife-fighting way about how politics are waged on a day-to-day basis, the Republicans are quick to latch on to emotional, seminal issues for voters and try to define them before the Democrats have even put their shoes on. And it, it has happened time and time again um, throughout the Biden administration. And I, you know, I think about um, uh, public spending programs uh, that, that we needed, that the Biden administration pushed through, that were clearly important wins that I don't think the Democrats have done a good enough job. Uh, think of the infrastructure bill. I think they've tried to default back to the infrastructure bill to talk about its importance and to take well-deserved credit for getting that through. But, uh, you know, those haven't been the things yet that have defined Biden. And I, and I think this is a problem that preceded Biden. And I think it's going to haunt the Democrats for a while because there's a, there's a quandary here. To, the Republicans are willing to um, mislead lie, sensationalize certain issues that they know they will get very um, uh, deep responses to from voters. And they're willing to go there in order to hold on to or or grasp at power. And the Democrats do it. Sometimes they simply have not done it as a methodology, as a methodic day-in, day-out approach to politicking. And it hurts them. The quandary is then, well, what's the correct response? And if you, want to, if you want to actually play ball in an aggressive way, but factually, you have to be a lot faster and unyielding than I think the Democrats have sometimes been on some of these issues. Yeah, not sometimes. I would say most of the time. Their messaging really sucks. And you're 100% right, Tim. You, you know Donald, right? I mean, it's nice when I'm able to speak to somebody that knows him, you know, for more than five minutes and wants to profess to be an expert on Donald Trump derangement <laughs> syndrome. Um, you know the manner to which Donald fights. It's a, it's a, a backyard brawl. It's in the, you know, it's a dumpster fight. And Donald Trump will do and say anything in order to win that fight, he will lie. He'll without, ch- without remorse, zero, without remorse. zero remorse, and you know, no, no compunction to lie. Um, you know, to the nth degree. So, what you really have is you have this entire scenario here where the Democrats do not want to get into that type of a brawl with Donald Trump for whatever the reason may be. Oh, it's beneath us, and so on. The funny thing is. Many people find it entertaining. It's almost like we've become a Kardashian country where people were completely fixated to the news, not very much more like Howard Stern. It's not that you like what he was doing or what he was saying. It was like you just couldn't wait to see what or to hear what he's going to say next. The craziness, you the know, lunacy. Michael, it's, 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 it's not only entertained, which is an important and central part of it, It's also validated that, you know, Trump validates things that people are thinking but are afraid to say out loud. Uh, You know, the idea that that he is an anomaly has allowed some people to give him and the rest of the country a free ride. He tore this Band-Aid off of, I think, a lot of received notions we've had around how much progress we've made in 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 the U.S. around lots of issues, including racism, bigotry, social equity, so on and so forth. And, and 
Um, he is not a sophisticated or a particularly bright man, but he but Trump has a reptilian sensibility about other people's flaws or other people's needs and how to like push at those buttons. And and when he does that and he does it with gusto and enjoyment, I think the people who support him say, wow, he's finally articulating these things. I've been you know thinking myself for so long, but I've been afraid to feel. And I think or been afraid to say. And I think, um, you know, the GOP shied away from that, you know, by and large institutionally up until Trump. And and one of the reasons I think Trumpism is going to survive Donald Trump is because other members of his, his party, Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan. Ron Ted DeSantis, Cruz, right? Ron DeSantis. They're willing, uh, you know, they're, they're willing, Josh Hawley, they're willing to, to dive into that muck in the same way that he has, because he's now shown that it's a true path to power. You can get away with it and you can win doing it. And you can raise and, money doing it as well. Yes, yes, exactly. So, and, and we're going to have to wrestle. Like, how do you respond to that as a party and as a let country? Let me give you the how answer. How do you respond to that dynamic? And let me give you the answer. All right. I only wish that I was on stage when he was attacking the other 17, even though I'm not a Republican. I've been a Democrat my whole life. But for this, I would have switched parties just so I could sit there and I would I would sit there and I would say the same things to him that he was saying to everybody else. You know, you cannot allow a bully to be a bully, especially one who's as stupid as Donald is. You have to turn around and you have to be the same obnoxious, nasty, you know, um, sort of emotion-provoking individual. So when he sat there lurking behind, for example, Hillary Clinton at the debate, I would have turned debate. around and I would have said, if I was her, listen, why don't you take your fat ass and bring it back over to your own dais because you stink like... You've been rolling around with the pigs, which, of course, you have been. Right. And well, Michael, you know where that's going. Right. The second the second you get into the mud with him, the larger thing happens to the process. I do think there's a better response. I think I think I think Hillary Clinton and others in the, in the Democratic Party could have had much more in your face responses to Trump that don't rely on completely mimicking his um how grotesque he's he can right be. but it, he's it's, also it's not troubling. but tim he's also not the only nasty kid in the playground right and so what Correct. happened is as the nasty kid in the playground everybody else wanted to play nice play by rules play by decorum and so on and that's how he ended up winning he ended up showing people you don't need to be respectful you don't need to have decorum while you're standing on stage looking to become the next president or the next nominee for the Republican Party but we can talk about this forever I want to jump into something else for a second if I can last week you wrote in Bloomberg that Merrick Garland has more than enough to investigate Trump saying, and I'm going to quote now, David Carter, a federal judge, just issued a ruling holding Trump accountable for trying to stage a coup in 2020. Garland has more than he needs to hold Trump and his enablers accountable too. Discuss with me the evidence that you think Garland has to prosecute Trump and why he's chosen not to do so, um, so you know, thus far. Look, I th I, Donald Trump's efforts to press pressure Mike Pence to to convince the Congress not to certify the election. Evidence, evidence, exhibit a type evidence. 
his communications that we already know of that existed with John Eastman about how to go about doing that. Great evidence. Um, the call with Brad need, Raffensperger? The, well, the call with Brad Raffensperger, which he also could be held accountable for in Georgia. There, there's, there's already a district attorney's investigation going on there. Um, is is not only it's not even a smoking gun. We have a tape recording of him calling up a state official and saying, "Find me eleven thousand or so votes. I need these in order to overturn um, the election." Um, uh, Navarro's, you know, uh, the Green Bay Packers sweep plan that mm -hmm. Navarro has published and 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 put out there as as something the administration was engaging in. Um, everything that Trump said in public venues on his Twitter feed. And in speeches in the months prior to January 6th, everything he said the day of January 6th, is this a completely airtight record yet that you could take into a court and, and prosecute him for electoral fraud? It's not completely airtight. Is it enough to begin an investigation and begin aggressively collecting the rest of the evidence you need to mount a case like that? Absolutely. Does the January 6th committee believe it already has enough evidence uh, to, to, to indicate that Trump committed electoral fraud? Yes, they've said so. Uh, the federal judge ruling on an evidence issue that the committee needed to get adjudicated involving communication between Eastman and Trump said the same thing. So the evidence is there. I think the question then is, is the second part of the next thing is the second part of your question, which is, why isn't Merrick Garland doing anything? Um, we don't know that he's not, but, but all outward indications are that he isn't. I think if, if, the, if the Attorney General of the United States and the Justice Department were aggressively gathering evidence around Trump himself and his closest advisors and getting testimony, there would be some leakage around that already, and we would know. And we haven't heard that. That doesn't mean he absolutely definitively isn't, but there's nothing to suggest that he is. And, and why isn't he? And I think it's because he wants to be cautious. Uh, Robert Mueller, like Merrick Garland, and Merrick Garland, like Robert Mueller, are by the book prosecutors. Uh, different, different parties, but the same respect for a process that they believe should be airtight before I think you hold someone like the President of the United States accountable for misdeeds, um, which is also well and good. We should respect that. But if they go so by the book, that they end up not actually launching a case. And I was disappointed by the outcome of Mueller's investigation of Trump. I think he self-circumscribed that investigation. He didn't go down the financial route. He left that, I think, to others to pursue, and they, they didn't. And I think Merrick Garland is, 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 I think, waiting for incontrovertible and bulletproof evidence before he formally launches something. And, and I think... That's a problematic issue. We, we've seen that in the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation. And this is the kind of stuff that Trump, Donald Trump his whole life has skated around. He has walked up to the edge of the law, pushed the limits of the law, or encouraged others to break the law on his behalf, and then has been able to like walk away from culpability and accountability for that. And uh, it would be a shame, I think, right now, at this moment in our history, for that to happen again. And there's signs that it might. Yeah. And this is yet another reason why the Democrats are right now failing. And I'm talking about number wise and um, and their positivity ratings 
of the president. Now, can we say that this is Joe Biden's fault? Well, he is the one that nominated Merrick Garland. And when you have an investigation that has now exceeded one year since its inception, you have over 700 people who have testified before that committee for something like 5,600 hours. It's almost like two years worth of 24-7 testimony. If you don't believe that you have that incontrovertible evidence, then do one of two things. Either drop the case and stop the bullshit or indict the guy. Now, you brought up an amazing, amazing point, which is Merrick Garland, just like Robert Mueller, they wanted to have, you know, irrefutable, you know, evidence and so on. Well, you have it. You have Donald Trump in his own voice now pressuring Brad Raffensperger for the 11,700 votes. On top of that, you have, you have the ellipse rally that was hijacked by Laura and Eric Trump, right? You have communications between uh, the, these Kramer mother-daughter and Mark Meadows. You have so much information that is there that should have already started the indictments. And I want to jump into Alvin Bragg for a quick second because I've met with the DA's office prior to Bragg in January becoming the DA under Cyrus Vance. Good. And we and we and we can talk about it. fifteen of them. And I've given them about ten thousand documents, give or take. And I spent an enormous amount of time with Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn. Two professionals. I mean really professional prosecutors, not looking, not looking to create evidence to go and to indict Trump and prosecute him and so on. Neither of them came on for that purpose, even though Carrie Dunn being general counsel was already there. But they didn't bring Mark Pomerantz on in order to make shit up. They wanted to get a factual assessment of the information that was um, attained by them so that they could determine whether or not an indictment should take place and a prosecution should go forward. And both of them unanimously said yes. Somewhere along the line, after six weeks of being in office, Alvin Bragg turns around and says it's not enough. Well, with all due respect to Alvin Bragg, all right, Mark Pomerantz has been doing this before he was out of diapers. And the guy is an expert, and I know the information that they had. And I'm telling you, it was 100% they could have indicted him. Now, does that mean you're going to have 100% um, you know, conviction? The answer is never. You never have 100%. But rest assured— some of the information—was the information given you that you gave them information that hadn't come into the public sphere yet? Yes, yes. And, can you, and, and did it have to do with tax— it had to do. It had to do with. It had to do with net worth uh, and the manipulation of the personal financial statements um, that were put you know, forth. There, a few things. A few things came up for me in like watching. You know the coverage of what's going on at Bragg's office, and um, uh, you know at one point they reached out about me going and, and talking to them, and I said, "No, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm not. I'm not part of your process." So I didn't have the perch that, that you had sitting inside. But it's something like one of the issues that came up is that the office was has it one of the hesitations they had is that they felt you were a primary witness and they were worried about your own credibility, which suggested to me 
that they didn't have a wide range of witnesses, that there was a lot of weight being put on your testimony and, and possibly Weisselberg's and Weisselberg didn't want to testify or cooperate. Is that is that accurate from where you sat in terms of what you were seeing going on? Well, if you ask Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunweather, every single um, response that I gave to them was factually accurate. Um, they would turn around and both say yes. On top of that, as I did in the House Oversight Committee, I knew that every one of those Republicans were going to attack me because I know the Trump playbook. I fucking created it. So I knew where they were going. I knew the, you know, the memos that were going to be sent out. Make sure that you hit this point. Use this word. Use this word. Use this word. So I knew what they were going to do well in advance. And so I prepared for it. How did I prepare for it? I provided documentary evidence. So that way, I don't care if Tim O'Brien thinks that I'm truthful or not. I didn't care if John or Jane Q. Public believes me or not. Don't believe me. Look at the documentary evidence that I put up onto the screen so that it verifies exactly and it corroborates the statements that I was making. Now, I can sit there and I could whine and tell you, what did I lie about? I mean, you're a journalist. What did I lie about that would make my credibility come into question? You're a journalist. What did I lie about? Well, I, you know, I think it was it was less about the fact pattern and more about atmospherics in a courtroom. Would you know? Would Trump's lawyers just put you up there and essentially walk through your history with him and everything else and use that as as grounds for trying to discredit you? Which, of course, they would do in a courtroom. So the issue that's raised about that to me is less about you as a solo pilot and more about how many other witnesses they could put on the stand alongside you that would convince again but you don't need like they yes but tim i apologize for interrupting but you don't need a hundred witnesses you don't need 20 witnesses all you need i don't just need enough to convince a jury and it's a wild card about what's going to convince a jury that's what prosecutors are always worried about um Look, I'm not saying I think it's 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 great that Alvin Bragg may not continue with this. I'm just saying there's some questions out there still about what his office had in terms of having something that was airtight. You know, the other thing that comes up for me is the issue around the SOFC, right? The statements of financial condition. I I never received one of those when I was reporting on Trump. You know, he contended when we litigated that he gave me one on when we were on one of his jets one time flying to L.A. and I ignored it, which was a lie. He never gave me one of those. The first time I saw one was when when I was being deposed. And when I when I was giving it, given it in the deposition, you know, I they said, you want to just look at this? And I said, well, I'm actually going to read from it from it, because this like the second page of this thing says that nothing in here comports with gap. Nothing in here comports with generally accepted accounting principles. So even if you gave this to me as a journalist, I wouldn't believe that it was an entirely objective assessment of his wealth. And if he was giving those to banks, I don't think banks did either. So I wondered in some of this reporting that, that, that's come out of the Bragg investigation, were they focused entirely on the, entirely on the SOFCs or do they also have um, actually fully audited statements that went to the banks that were signed they never, off? They never were. Users? To the best of my knowledge, they never, never were. were. This is what the banks. So again, the issue then is what were the banks? 
you know, what were the banks basing their decisions on? I just think that would be a really tricky dynamic in a courtroom to explain this to a jury where they understood that sophisticated lenders like banks who only got those SOFCs, which were essentially cartoon were comic books in a lot of ways, would have gone ahead and made a lending decision on that and felt defrauded. It, that's, a, that's a hard thing to nail down. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. There were many other uh, specific acts that were taken. For example, the inflation of the of the asset itself, but then the deflation of the same asset for tax purpose and the providing of the documents to banks for the use. Providing a document like that, you know, claiming that these are you know that these are the only financial statements. And again, you were talking about Donald Trump. You're not talking about, you know, again, John or Jane Q. Public. Warren Buffett. That, that's right. You know, if Warren Buffett comes in and turns around and says, listen, I'm worth $50 billion and, you know, and you know that he is, you know, the, I, I guess the responsibility on behalf of the banks is diminished. But going back to Alvin Bragg for a quick second, here's what I think. I think that he has forgotten that as a DA, his job is not to convict. And I take offense to the fact that people don't understand that. His job is not to convict. It's to determine if the information that is in his possession, right, warrants prosecution. And this is something that Judge Rakoff, uh, here from the federal court judge, Southern District of New York, the same courthouse that I was involved with, um, he writes in his book, right, Why Innocent People Plead Guilty. A job of a prosecutor is not to convict, it's to prosecute. End of story. And everybody, everybody and the higher echelon from Mark Pomerantz to Carrie Dunn and others all believed that there was more than enough there in order to prosecute. Well, you know, and on that side of the ledger, it gets back to what we were talking to about Mueller and Garland, that, you know, no prosecutor ever has 100 percent certainty. So you have to then decide about whether or not you're going to show a little backbone and steal and go in there anyway because you've got enough facts that to demonstrate you that there was malfeasance. And, and I do think if, if Alvin Bragg does lack the steel to see this through, um, if he's got a preponderance of evidence, but not enough evidence, uh, you know, and, and that causes him to shy away for bad reasons. I, I think that's a tremendous, tremendous loss. Was there any, was there Anything that you think is highly significant that you told them that hasn't been public yet? That you can yeah, speak about yes. I, I won't talk about it yet, but uh, the answer to that is, okay. is yes. And again, it deals with uh, financial improprieties and so on. But you know, I just wanted to say this to you. You know, uh, Judge um, Carter uh, had what I thought was one of the funniest lines, and it's just so typical of Trump and the Trump administration. And he, and, he, and he stated, but ignorance of the law is no excuse. And believing the Electoral Count Act was unconstitutional did not give President Trump license to violate it. Disagreeing with the law entitled President Trump to seek a remedy in court, not to disrupt a constitutionally mandated process. And this is the issue, right? What he does is he figures out, and you said it perfectly before, he goes right up to the line. And then he just turns on and says, fuck it. And he's going to cross it. And he doesn't, doesn't cross it by an inch. He goes by a mile. 
And, he, and he's gotten away with it on so many occasions that he actually thinks that he is the Teflon Don. But let me just move forward for a quick second here, because I want to talk about... Can we say one other thing, just in terms of props to, to Judge Carter? Sure. Uh, is, you know, he is a, he's a war hero. He was decorated for valor multiple times for his service in Vietnam. He is a patriot. He is an authentic patriot, yep. not a Trumpista patriot. And 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 I think that that opinion he wrote was was just shot through with this sense of respect for the Constitution, for our history and for what it really means to serve the country. And you could sense his outrage around the idea that Trump wouldn't be held accountable for trying to orchestrate and then stage a coup. Yeah, And everybody should be outraged except for his sycophantic, you know, followers. <laughs> but let's talk about this tape of former President Trump, right, sitting before a panel of historians admitting that he lost the election. I mean, isn't this not a crucial, you know, public admittance that he knew the election was stolen, making him even more open for charges of obstruction and fraud? Uh, short answer. Absolutely. Yes. And again, this is part of a public record. It's demonstrable. It's on tape. He said it. It is not nebulous. It's as clear as day. And it's essentially an admission of guilt. And, and uh, you know, he is not lying about something. I actually think all of this is far worse than the financial um, uh, trespasses uh, and possible fraud that he's, he, he engaged in. Not that that stuff is not really bad and not that it's problematic and not that he should get away with it. That stuff is very bad. But everything that, that he has done around the 2020 election goes to the very heart of democracy. He has polluted a lot of voters' faith that we have clean elections. Uh, he, he encouraged violence, violence that resulted in deaths. Uh, he had people defecate. He caused people to storm the Capitol and then defecate inside the building as well as breaking and entering. Uh, all of this, all of this is the most base and heinous disregard for constitutional democracy that is going to have echoes globally and, and within the United States for quite a long time. And, and, and he should be held accountable for it, in my view. Absolutely. He, he doesn't seem to be held accountable for anything. You know, the other day I was before Judge Lyman uh, on the case Michael Cohen versus United States government, Trump, Bill Barr, for the unconstitutional remand of me. And one of the issues that the government brought up, this Allison Rovner and then Trump's, you know, newest attorney, this uh, young lady, Haba and her partner, they turned around and they were like, well, a real estate attorney from New Jersey, by the way. Yeah. Like, has no experience in most of the stuff that she's representing. Yeah, life. and the responses were really ridiculous. They never, they never refuted the claim that he knew about it and that he was involved in it, other than stating that he has presidential immunity, that at the time he was president, he can do whatever he want. That's, and then my lawyer jumped in and said, no, no, no. That's how autocrats, kings, and monarchs, right, see the world. Not the president of the United States to be involved in it and complete. And what we were looking for is discovery. Now, all of a sudden, what comes out? That Donald Trump, which of course I knew, and which is why we wanted the discovery to go forward, which I believe Judge Lyman granted in part, you know, uh, you know limited discovery. But our big concern is his destruction 
of documents. He's been known to do it. There was, a, there was an article written in Newsweek. There was an article written, I believe, in Politico. There was another one written in the Salon. I mean, you know, you have all of these articles expressing the concern about Donald Trump destroying documents and not providing pursuant to the subpoena, which now, of course, Attorney General um, Tish James has now, you know, um, gone after, you know, called gone, him out. Yeah. And called him out on. And she so, wants to find him one hundred thousand dollars a day until he I, I think it's ten thousand a day. But um, I mean, 10, yeah, 000. I think it's ten thousand a day, but also to hold him in contempt. Now, you could hold the former president in contempt. You can, you know, fine him for failing to produce um, your documents and testimony pursuant to subpoena. And so but she can't indict him. I mean, that's why I'm so angered by the lack of action after a year. And the problem is, again, the public, they want to see something. They don't want to every day this Trump fatigue, Trump, 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 Trump. It's like you want to throw up every time you hear the name. And well, and he knows that he's using that to his advantage. Yes. Right? That's the other thing he's always done is anytime he gets involved in litigation, he just draws it out and draws it out. He wages a war of attrition with the opposition till they get sick of him or 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 worn out by him and they walk or away circumstances change that happening around yep these, or circumstances yeah. change where he becomes president and now you can't sue the president based upon the bill Barr memo right you know when we litigated with him um we had we subpoenaed his tax records and as part of that litigation and he just delayed he delayed he delayed and then when they first turned the documents over you know, the tax returns looked like crossword puzzles. I think the only number visible was Melania's income from modeling. Uh, and we had to go back to the well and demand it again and again. And that took that took, you know, months and months. Let's uh, not forget. Discovery process sure, and, and, and don't work. forget the D.A. did the same thing. They started it when they came to visit me up at uh, Otisville. And um, I provided them enough information that gave them the ability to file the lawsuit for the tax returns. They then win that case. He, of course, appeals it. Then, of course, they win the appeal. Now he wants to take it up to the Supreme Court. Ultimately, they got it. And if you're going to tell me that after knowing that he took back $170 million in write-offs and, uh, and tax refunds, and you really think that that makes any sense and nobody's looked through those documents, which I know they have, and you don't have tax evasion, you don't have all sorts of tax fraud, wire fraud, bank fraud, misrepresentation, etc. Come on, let's go Alvin Bragg. Well, and you know, on on that point, one of the things we were talking earlier about sophisticated banks and sophisticated lenders, you could make a very strong argument that they should have known who they were getting into bed with. I don't think that argument holds at all for tax authorities. You know, to the extent that, you know, Trump was, was defrauding local tax officials and federal tax officials, um, through valuations hijinks in order to play with his tax bill. I, I think the idea that you should expect the tax authorities to be so sophisticated they don't know they're getting hoodwinked, I think that's got a lot less traction mm-hmm. in a courtroom and, and, and in arguments than the idea the banks do. And I think that, Alex, actually from the very beginning felt to me like some of his most vulnerable spots yes, and in terms of a financial fraud investigation. But then again, going back, I totally, I totally agree with you, Tim. But let's get back to Merrick Garland again and his no, his do nothing attitude. Mark Meadows was recommended for contempt by the full House of Representatives in a vote a hundred days ago, right? A hundred days ago. 
And Merrick Garland has still not indicted him, right? Now, my gut says that 100 days is probably enough for them to figure out if Congress is right or wrong on this. I mean, it's a long time. Why is Garland not moving faster on this? I mean, and, even- and the same clock is now ticking on on, on Dan Scavino and, and and Peter Navarro. Exactly, they've just been cited for the same thing. How long is it going to take for the Justice Department then to take action? I mean, even President Biden has asked Garland to act like a prosecutor. I mean, I still don't understand what's holding this up. Or do you believe that there is an investigation ongoing and we just don't know about it? And I have to be. I, I'm not going to, you know taint the question by giving you my opinion first, but I'm going to give it anyway. There is no investigation yet, right? There is so much information in Merrick Garland's hand in the, in the January 6th committee and in the House Oversight Committee, in the House and Senate Permanent Select Committees on Intelligence, the Senate Judiciary. They all have so much information. I just, YouTube, Twitter. Right, right. <laughs> you know? Truth. The Truth Social Network. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The best social media platform there is. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I, there clearly is an, an investigation of the small fry around January 6th, the people that stormed the Capitol. It is, it is frustrating and, and really perplexing to me if there is not a full-blown investigation of the architects. And we know there are architects. We know the people, the people themselves, the lower level protesters who stormed the Capitol have all said what inspired them to go there. They were hearing it from Trump on social media and in speeches for months, for months. There were groups who funded a lot of the events around January 6th. We know about all the meetings in the Willard Hotel the day prior. Yep. Uh, involve, involving you know Boris Epstein and, and Steve Bannon's sort of war room there. We still don't know everything about what took place in those meetings. What was communicated between the White House and that room at the Willard? There is a lot about the fact pattern needs to get filled in that only an investigator with a strong arm of the law and subpoena power and the ability to put people in jail can mm-hmm. get to the bottom of. The January 6th committee can only go so far. And I think they've done really amazing work. They've been very brave and purposeful, but there's a good chance that the, that the House changes hands this fall. And if the Republicans get control of Congress, it's over. this January 6th committee is going to be defenestrated in short order. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, let me ask you this then in furtherance. In reports that Trump communicated on January 6th through back channels, whether it was phones of aides or burner phones, you replied, Mob boss, discuss with me why. <laughs> discuss with me why this is probably not the first time that he used a burner phone in the furtherance of a crime. What was your What was your rationale behind you know those two very powerful words? I think Donald Trump has always rolled like a mob boss. You know, he said to me once, Michael, um, we were talking about his own intersections with organized crime. When he first got into Atlantic City, remember his first partners in Atlantic City were mobbed up. Uh, he had to, as anybody in the real estate business in New York does, you, you bump up against, less so now, but certainly in Trump's heyday, you bumped up against organized crime. So there were parts of Trump's life where some of that was intentional, some of it was accidental, some of it was unavoidable, but it happened. And and we had a number of kind of conversations about what he thought about organized crime. And we got to the subject of John Gotti. 
And he said, you know, the one thing I really like about John Gotti is he never cried. He sat in that courtroom and he had a look on his face towards that judge and that jury of basically F you. I don't care. And he said, you know, that's a man. And I think Trump, you know, he is always he is a wildly insecure man. He's insecure about his intellect, his wealth, his physical attractiveness and his own courage, because in a lot of ways, he's very weak kneed. And I think he one of the reasons he fetishizes people like Putin and John Gotti is he adores strongmen. And I think in a lot of ways, he likes to adopt this idea that he rolls like a strong man, that like he's a mob boss himself. And he and he does some things that people who intend to do wrong mm -hmm. or unlawful things do. He avoids keeping a public record. You know, he avoids using email. Uh, he likes using other people's telephones. And the idea, you know, that 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 Donald Trump doesn't know what a burner phone is, is is akin to Al Capone saying he doesn't know what bootlegging is. Donald Trump knows what a burner phone is. Donald Trump knows very little about some of the most important things in life, but he does know how to cover his backside. And he's been doing it for, you know, 76 of his 76 years. Yeah. And, 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 and I just think there's somebody who behaves like he does and is willing to throw close advisors under the bus. You have firsthand experience of that. Um, at times, I think his children have. Others of other advisors had Alan Weisselberg has uh, is because he believes he's at the top of the food chain. Everyone else below him is dispensable and disposable. And he doesn't think the law or conventional rules apply to him. And he also believes that those of us that worked for him, his we'll call it, you know, um, his supporters, his um, employees, his whatever else you want to call us, right? Um, his fools, that we should not just take the responsibility so that he doesn't have to, but we should be honored to take the responsibility for his dirty deeds as well. I mean, I know a few folks that were with him when I made the statement um, to George Stephanopoulos that, you know, um, I will not be a punching bag, you know, for Donald Trump and I will not allow history to cast me as the villain of his story. He didn't believe that those words would ever come out of my mouth. The words that he always believed was that um, I would take a bullet for him. And so... Well, Michael said it, so therefore, let's roll him. I mean, he'll do it. He'll do it. We'll, we'll, think, we'll figure out how to take care of him when he gets out of prison. And when I ultimately decided, and I hate the word flip because I didn't flip. I just cooperated pursuant to subpoena or request from, from Congress, which is my responsibility. It was my obligation, not to mention I felt it was my way of trying to help to make amends for letting Frankenstein out of the cage. Well, you know, you have, again, you know, your experience with him, and I think you've, you've said this in other forums, maybe in conversations we've had in the past, but um, that when you first came into his orbit, you, you saw him as this almost superhuman personality, a big figure in Manhattan real estate, someone who lived large and was on the cover of magazines. And that was intoxicating for you. And I think, I think a lot of people who come into his orbit initially and are enamored of him have a similar relationship to him. 
And I think what that ends up convincing him is that indeed you will take a bullet for him, that that he can take advantage of folks like you and others in his orbit because they get the great um, benefit of, of, of being in his halo or being in his orbit. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore they'll do anything. And, and in fact, most people have rolled that way. I think it's unusual for an insider like you to have turned the corner and decided to come back at him in a different way. Alan Weisselberg clearly hasn't gotten there, and he was with him decades longer than you were. Oh, yeah, that is true. Well, let me ask you this then, because Ivanka just testified before the January 6th committee. Now, beyond asking her, why did it take Trump so long to put out that video with a statement, send out a tweet or what have you, you know, um, you know, as he was watching the horrors that took place, um, you know, on news channels, which, you know, he was watching of the January 6th, um, you know, attack on the Capitol. What else would you ask her? And, and how well, many would, and how many times do you think because uh, it didn't report it I couldn't find it anywhere how many times like Eric Trump did with Tish James five hundred times fifth. to take the fifth I wonder if she took the fifth at all I have no idea you know it was interesting that you know the the, the January sixth committee also described Jared Kushner's testimony as quote unquote I think very helpful I didn't expect her to be so compliant with that committee um, I hope they asked her about every conversation she had with him about about the 2020 election um, in the months prior to January 6th and what his state of mind was about it, what actions Mm -hmm. she said she saw him take towards communicating with others about the events of that day, about efforts to overturn the election, about conversations with Rudy Giuliani on that whole sham uh, legal strategy, you know, sixty more than sixty suits filed and lost suits. Filed By the way, that's another one. We returned. I apologize. That's another one. You know, not only evidence, you know, th- n- evidence, but not only you know, did we talk about um, you know Dan Scavino or Mark Meadows in the hundred days? What about Rudy Giuliani? What's going on with that case? It's the same thing. These folks in Trump's orbit, as I had said at the very beginning, that they feel that there's this. Um, ability of them uh, for them not to be responsible and not to have to answer for any of their dirty deeds. I mean, it's amazing. Rudy Colludi Giuliani. All right. We have video of him saying the craziest shit. Well, I don't care if it was in the Four Seasons landscaping with the hair dye running down his mouth. Right. I mean, it doesn't make a difference. These are his words. And I, He's been disbarred in some jurisdictions for his actions. Well, Why has enough. he held to have been held to a to a fuller account for this? And again, maybe he will be. We know it yet again. How there's long another, does there's it another have investigation? To... But that's been long in the tooth too. And the um, public is sick I... and tired of waiting, Tim. This is the big problem. Everyone's sick and tired. You don't want to see like this guy Rhodes from the Oath Keeper or this other, you know, schmuck and a half that, you know, went there. The one with the, you know, with the stupid uh, shaman, you know, say, oh, the, these are the bad guys. Fuck no. The bad guys are the ones that let them in the day or two before so they can map out the place. The one that built the fucking gallows there screaming, let's, you know, let's hang Mike Pence. Let's kill. Let's kill Nancy Pelosi. I mean, 
these are the ones that are destroying our democracy, the ones that are shitting on our Constitution and trying to change the, the United States of America as a system of, you know, of, of democracy. It's insane. And nobody, nobody, Alan Weisselberg, he's got another, you know, nine, ten months before the trial is going to begin. Why? Why? You've already indicted him. My case started and finished in 48 hours. Put the same pressure on them that they did to me, right? And then on top of it, not only do you have Rudy Kaludi out there, you know, still acting like an asshole, but you got his son too, Andrew, the halfwit, running around saying also stupid things, all in appeasement of Donald. Now, I don't think Rudy is on Donald's side anymore. Hey, Michael, were there, were there other people, were there other people in the Trump organization who you think had knowledge of um, possible misdeeds by Trump that who have not been called in front of prosecutors? I don't. Yet? I don't know who has and who has not been called. But rest assured, every single person like myself who had an executive title, everybody knew. Everybody knew all the malfeasance that Donald did because everything went through Donald. What, no matter what it was from the acquisition of rubber bands all the way to the acquisition of the Doral, everything ran through Donald. But let me move on because, you know, I have two more questions for you and the hour is going by really quickly. You know, okay. President Biden was recently quoted as saying, you may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter, you saw what happened in Bucha. This warrants that he is a war criminal. But we have to gather the information. What do you believe will be the outcome here? I mean, is Biden calling for his arrest? Is this a is this a backdoor towards a regime change? Well, I don't think calling someone a war criminal gets you regime change. I think I think that if if the Hague, you know, wants to um, begin formal proceedings at some point against Putin, which I think they, again, have ample evidence to do as a war criminal. They will. The practical implications of, of citing Putin right now as a war criminal, I think, are pretty de minimis. Uh, I think Biden has been speaking often from his gut on that issue as much as strategically. Uh, I think I think he's clearly frustrated some folks in his inner circle about his timing around some of that. Uh, but I don't think when he says it that he's wrong. But I'm not an architect of American diplomacy in the middle of a sensitive war. I, I think, again, there's enough evidence out there that, that the Russian army has been committing war crimes. Uh, if you then can demonstrate that Putin was directing that and had knowledge of it, which shouldn't be in an ideal world too much of a stretch, but in the real world, maybe in order, you know, getting that kind of evidence, then it's there. But I, you know, I, I think that, that anybody watching the situation knows that long term, the only solution ultimately may be regime change, because I don't think that I don't think that Putin is going to change at this point. And in fact, I think he's going going down a, a, a slippery, a more slippery slope than he did in the past with this invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, look, it's I, I think everything that he's doing is completely dangerous. Uh, it is so reminiscent of Nazi Germany. I mean, you start seeing, and this is what, again, this is what bothers me. And it's a problem that Donald Trump has managed to master, right? Which is, there are videos of people riding their bicycles. And next thing you know, they're laying dead on the ground. And then you have- Or the information that came out today, the bombing in, in March. 
people, you know, of the hospital. That, you know, the AP has got footage, witnesses, they've got munitions experts. It all shows that there was an airstrike by the Russians there, and the Russians are saying no. Right. And they're, cl- they're claiming that the Ukraine, shot. that they did it themselves, and that they're trying, yeah, you know, they, that, they that, cra- that crazy sort of reverse propaganda. But that's exactly what Donald was doing, and he was using, whether it's Newsmax, OAN, Fox, National Enquirer, he was using these companies in order to promote the same sort of misinformation, disinformation, and he's doing exactly what an autocrat would do, exactly what we're watching as Putin is doing. Look, it's crazy, but my last question to you, because again, the hour is coming to an end. I understand that Sarah Palin is set to run for Congress. Now, she's not even remotely the most embarrassing or polarizing figure in a class that consists of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Josh Hawley, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, and so many others. Paul Gosar, that fucking scumbag, right? I mean, you know, oh, Jesus, right? How much of what we see today stems from what Palin created? Well, I actually think it goes back even further. I think you can sort of look at the, at the modern GOP, and the kind of um, culture wars and and divisive language. You could go back to the John Birch Society and Barry Goldwater, the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, I think there was the Reagan era uh, into the Bush era. I think Lee Atwater was an architect of some of these mess- this messaging. Don't forget the Willie Horton ad. That predated Sarah Palin. And then you got to Sarah Palin, where you sort of formally ingested someone into the political mainstream who was wildly ill-informed, uh, but was a, a, a flamethrower without conscience. And she just wasn't as good at it as Donald Trump. Donald Trump was essentially a fully realized form of Sarah Palin. But all of these moments before from Goldwater to Willie Horton to Sarah Palin to Donald Trump are all on the same timeline. And and I think what you see in that is a GOP coming into a more fulsome understanding of the power of inflammatory and ugly rhetoric in an age in which the, the media also became dispersed, institutional power became dispersed, and 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 you had a lot of economic crisis, particularly over the last 15 years and and dislocation. And, and Trump walked into that vacuum. But I think there's no question that Sarah Palin was a curtain raiser to Donald Trump, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I mean, Trump didn't walk into it. He was born into being a serial liar, which there was a great article in uh, PBS actually put it out claiming that she, meaning Sarah Palin, I agree with you. I don't think she was the first, but they claim that she is, that she's the first of a generation of politicians who live in a post-truth environment. She was, and there's no polite way to say it, a serial liar, right? Um, and, and it's just true. You know, I don't, and people used to say, well, she's not lying, she's just stupid, right? Like the whole stupidity that she could see Russia from her backyard. I mean, you know, it's just that she's stupid. And when you have somebody who's stupid and manages to be funny enough, whether you want to blame Saturday Night Live for making her bigger than what she really is, right? Or, you know, the nonsense that happened with... uh, I mean, charismatic. Charisma gets one a long way. 
you, there's a lot of things we can deny Donald Trump. We can't deny that he has a certain kind of charisma. And her too. That gives him a lot of traction with voters, and she does yep. too. Yep, and it's just, um, unfortunately, they lie like you breathe. But, Tim, let me thank you for joining me again on Mea Culpa. Thanks for you having know, me, Stay Michael. safe. Obviously, I will be coming back to you again because there's so much more. Let's just all, you know— just take a moment and pray to whoever, you know, your God is. Just let's just pray that Merrick Garland and that, you know, Alvin Bragg, you know, comes to his senses, that Tish James keeps doing the great job she's doing, and the the DA in Georgia and the what's going on in Washington, DC, and somebody take the lead and somebody just protect the future of this country before we lose, you know, our most valuable, valuable piece of paper, the Constitution, right? Our most valuable document, you know, for, of, for our rights. And trust me, I know as someone who had my rights violated, I know what it feels like. And I, I'm, I'm nervous for the future of this country. But again, let me just thank you for your time, your, you know, your wisdom. And I'll see, I'll see you out there on the streets of Manhattan, Michael. I look forward to it. Make sure you yell loud enough because, you know, I don't hear too well anymore. <laughs> Tim, be well. Bye. And now for today's mea culpa. For as grateful as I am that Joe Biden is a decent, honorable human being and not Donald Trump, I can't help but feeling like the man is just a caretaker. Or at least that was supposed to be the idea. Biden was supposed to be the antidote to Donald Trump, a soothing bomb of boredom and proficiency after the chaos and imbecility of the Trump years. Many of us thought that once he was gone, he'd be gone, left to lick his wounds in shame for Mar-a-Lago. Biden would help the nation catch its breath and fix all that Trump broke before handing the presidency off to the next generation. We all know what happens next. The past two years have been non-stop chaos as the GOP has waged its own war against the Biden presidency and democracy in general. It has flushed industrial quantities of toxic bullshit across social media and fractured whatever was left of our political system to the point where Republicans no longer the party to which they belong. The GOP has become a tool of Donald Trump, a cult of personality for which the only goal is the amassing of power. There is no agenda beyond waging a non-stop culture war and gleefully trolling the libs. The litmus for admittance into the modern GOP is the belief that the 2020 election was stolen despite all evidence to the contrary. It's a party of lies, it's leaders poisoning every last vestige of decency and democratic norms. And now, these agents of chaos, these propagators of sedition and treason, could once again run the country. I mean, seriously folks, how the fuck is this possible? How can this be allowed? Oh yeah, we live in a democracy. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. 
And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. Thank <laughs> you.